Hey everybody, it's your pal Eric again coming to you with another pre-show message. So in case you missed this on Twitter or Facebook or I don't know wherever you get your She-Ra news, uh, we just announced yesterday that this coming Thursday, August 20th, Lauren and I will be moderating the first of two panels we're calling She-Ra The Exit Interviews, which uh, both of which are going to feature a whole slew of of talent from the DreamWorks She-Ra uh, talking to us about kind of their thoughts on the, the closing of the series. So this coming Thursday, August 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, so that's 6 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Pacific, we're going to have uh, Jen Bennett, Josie Campbell, Phil Lomboy, Noel Stevenson, Sharon Sun, and M. Willis on uh, a Twitch stream. Uh, that's twitch.tv slash Eric C. Garneau. You can watch that. Again, that's Thursday, August 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also submit questions for us to ask the panel to our email address at progressiveapower at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Should be a lot of fun. Hope you can tune in. If you can't, it will also be the next day's podcast episode. So that's fun. Uh, Other than that, I also need to call out that Cassie is the winner of our bingo challenge from way back at the start of the season. Cassie, I will be getting in touch with you to figure out what kind of cool stuff we're going to send. Okay. Once again, Thursday, August 20th, 7 p.m. Eastern, twitch.tv slash Eric C. We're going to have... A really good time. Now on with the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to He-Man and the Progressives of Power. Once again, I am Eric. And I'm Lauren. And this is our final flashback episode. And unlike the other two, we're watching this for a couple personal reasons. So... Uh, reason one is that to do this whole She-Ra podcast, I had asked Lauren to watch uh, the He-Man episode Diamond Ray of Disappearance, which is the first He-Man episode, uh, before she even watched She-Ra, because she was so unfamiliar with the whole thing. And then in uh, season two, we watched the He-Man episode Eye of the Beholder to kind of look at how filmation series portrayed things like physical beauty and aesthetics. And I think it's fair to say that both of those episodes are not great. Uh, Eye of the Beholder is kind of universally recognized as, like, a terrible episode, actually. We did watch the, like, He-Man and She-Ra crossover episodes, and those were quite good. That's true. We watched the Christmas special, and, I mean, technically those are She-Ra and the Princess of Power episodes, but it's not like you don't have a basis for He-Man at this point. Right, and they have the He-Man theme song, which really is the most important part. I completely agree with that. But uh, I felt like before we left, I think I thought it would be doing a disservice if I didn't try to show Lauren an episode of He-Man that I really, really liked. And Into the Abyss is actually, which is the episode we're watching today, it's from Season 2 of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, 1984, initial air date. Uh, Into the Abyss is my favorite episode Probably, well, we can dig into this on our very last episode, but this is probably my favorite episode in any aspect of the fandom. Whoa. Yeah. I love Into the Abyss. Uh, we're not going to dive too hard into the background of He-Man, because if you really want to know where this series comes from, you can uh, listen to the first episode of our podcast, which is actually like number five or number six in our top 10 most listened to episodes, which I think is funny. Like, do people 
start the rewatch and then not or like do people start going back to the original series and then decide it's not worth it or do they think that it's the first episode of the new she-ra and then they're like oh no wait i don't know oh, back up this. back up yeah because <laughs> right. the numbers say they're not continuing on after that <laughs> right um but that does have a little bit of background on the historical context of he-man and the masters of the universe which of course led to she-ra and the princess of power this episode happens before she-ra uh is on the scene it has nothing to do with really anything in she-ra and the princesses of power except that to me it's kind of a a bedrock of the whole franchise so the episode we're covering is into the abyss in this episode tila is trying to get prince adam to kind of do his duties and like do training and stuff with her because she's the captain of the guard and he's supposed to be trained in like defense and martial arts and he's tired and he doesn't want to do that stuff so he kind of lectures tila and dismisses her as though she were just like any old person at the palace and he's the prince and then cringer tells adam like yo you're being a dick and meanwhile man at arms tells tila like you know he is the prince maybe you need to relax a little bit which is kind of an interesting uh choice uh so tila plots a like training session for adam she goes super out of her way to plot this day of training for adam that doesn't feel like work like they go have a picnic and then they do hide and seek where like she makes him track her through the forest and then they go on like a chase and stuff but unfortunately um tila runs all the way to castle grayskull and uh falls into the abyss outside of grayskull which we saw established in the 2002 He-Man flashback, The Power of Grayskull. So we know that's the source of Grayskull's magic. Uh, Adam, Man-at-Arms, and Orko figure out that's where Tila is, and they have this like harrowing rescue scene, complete with an amazing transformation we definitely have to talk about. And that's really the episode, is basically Tila falls in the abyss, and He-Man saves her. And that's kind of all the plot there is to it, which is one of the reasons I love this episode. <laughs> That it's it's simple? Yeah, because I think this is the only episode of the series that does not have um, really a villain to it. That there's no kind of inciting incident except one that's born out of character drama. And in that way, I think this is... It feels like a much more modern show than the rest of He-Man. Like, it is kind of a precursor to Princesses of Power just in that way. That, like, what really impels this episode to go forward is the fact that prince adam is a dick and it's the only time in all of he-man that we kind of get into this difference between adam and he-man and we see adam not be a good guy where he's just like tired and as he tells tila you know he-man doesn't get tired or he tells cringer he-man doesn't get tired but i do and i don't want to do this stuff and i think that's really cool that like there's a whole episode built on this idea that makes sense that no one else in you know the 130 episodes of he-man ever thought about i find it very interesting that adam being a dick is kind of what you personally took out of this episode so to go back to the first half of what you were saying i can see why this would be a favorite episode to someone who has watched a lot of he-man um, on its own, like, I liked it. I liked it a lot, but I wasn't blown away by it. Hearing your explanation, like, this is the only time we don't see a villain, and this is where we just get to see relationships, 
I bet that was so unique to experience sort of like as a younger person, as a fan of the show. It, do, it does sound like a real standout, like in a context that I don't have. The thing I will say is that I found myself frustrated because I think Tila got lectured on like, maybe you should lighten up, maybe you should learn to play a little bit more. Um, and then even in the moral at the end, it was like Tila also needed to learn to play more safely and be less reckless. And I don't think anyone actually circled back around. Cringer tried a little bit, but there was no like watershed moment for like, Adam, maybe you should step up and not be a dick. Like, I don't think he got the same wake up call that Tila did. So I wonder if your revelation that like Adam is a dick and we really get to see that this episode I think part of that Eric is your personality and you knowing that that's not how you should treat other people because not many people tell Adam that well I mean I first of all I totally agree that the moral sells Tila out and that's bullshit and I also do think it's weird that like more weight is given to man-at-arms telling Tila to relax although he does have a point that like as like he also brings up power structure in that argument or in, in that talk right which it, that part is correct like adam doesn't have to treat you with you know respect like ultimately you work for him which i think is valuable to keep in mind because again like this show kind of has those socio-political relationships on its mind <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up because uh, my partner and i had a talk like this literally about my relationship with my boss like this week I think I personally struggle with that a lot like no like sometimes you just have to acknowledge that there's a structure and that person has authority over you sorry if you don't agree with it you're that's the situation you're in I know that for me that's really hard to accept and it gets me into some trouble and I think that's interesting because so, first of all, I do think Cringer tries to talk Adam right, but you're right that it doesn't have the same weight as, like, the other conversations. But I also think if we're going to go there, which we should, there's also a way in which, like, we can under like we can see Tila putting on this entire production, right, to get Prince Adam to do things that he is just supposed to be doing. Right. Like, which it's is it's the of, emotional labor of a woman. <laughs> exactly. Like, she doesn't need to do any of this to, like, put on a show like, oh, we're going to go have fun like we used to. And then, like, work in a way to train him. Like, she's doing that because I think she feels like it's the only way she can reach this, this like, blockheaded prince. And I think that's kind of neat. And it sucks that, like, the show does kind of punish her for that. But also, I think you can read it to where... She's trying so hard because no one else has her back. Yeah, it reminded me of, like, the character trope, like, Lisa Simpson all the way up to your, like, Meg from Family Guy. The 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 women in a family the, who, are, who are competent and so off, often aren't doing anything wrong, just being resented for being intelligent and ambitious i know there was an air there was a time in cartoons where i think it was more common to just sort of laugh at women for being that and i think we're growing out of that as a society thank goodness yeah and i don't think the show's laughing at tila but i think it is scolding her too much so i completely agree with you there All i have the same a question I, I do have a question sorry to interrupt but in that conversation with man at arms it's it's explained that Tila and He-Man grew up together like brother and sister. 
that's not a thing I think I knew about the lore before today. And it really strikes at the existence of She-Ra. Like, She-Ra is Adam's sister, but he didn't grow up with She-Ra. He grew up with Tila, sort of as an adoptive sister. And so is there ever... Is that ever talked about or acknowledged? Like, I imagine it would be a very interesting episode to see some maybe, like, jealousy or hesitation from Tila that, like, this other sister suddenly appeared and gets to be treated like a sister when she wasn't there. I would have to wiki Grayskull whether Tila appears in many episodes of She-Ra. I know that she is in uh, Reunion. Like, she's in the five-part origin but they never do head-on address that, which would be fascinating. And, like, honestly, that could be the kind of emotional material that Kevin Smith's series could get into, except I don't think that they have She-Ra. But uh, I imagine, which ties into something else in this episode, Kevin Smith has quite a lot of plans for Tila. Um, and I think Times would kind of demand that now, right? Because she is, like, the most prominent female character, and... Uh, it's just not going to fly that we have a show that's a total boys club in, in 2020 or 2021, whenever it debuts. Yeah. 2020 is surprisingly almost over. It's flying by as we all sit here in our own abyss. Uh, man at arms knows that Adam is He-Man, right? Yeah. As the opening explains, uh, the sorceress man at arms and Orko. Orko. Know. So like everyone in this episode, except for Tila, is clued in, which also raises my eyebrow a little bit as to why they're giving her all the responsibility to like fix the situation. <laughs> That's a really good point. Like, I mean, Man in Arms can't really sell out Adam and be like, yo, there's a reason he's tired. But you'd think he could kind of like maybe find a more tactful way than like reprimanding his daughter. <laughs> put some pat, just put some like metaphorical padding in there. Just like, oh, you know, it's just been a really long week for him. It's probably okay, and that's it. Just end it there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I, I, I didn't like that part as much upon rewatch, um, but I still think, you know, if if you can divorce it from the um, the kind of gendered reading, which I don't think we should do entirely, but if you look at it just from like a character drama perspective, I do think this is like a really it's a very good try, and I think it's successful. And yeah, in the context of the rest of He-Man, that's why I love it so much is because, you know, it. now you watch a cartoon like this and it doesn't seem like anything interesting, but it was pretty revolutionary back when every plot was like Skeletor does something and then... He gets punched for it. Exactly. <laughs> I really actually did enjoy seeing them play in the woods because, yes, Tila makes this whole plan to sort of trick Adam into working, but I think she's having fun along the way too. She eventually is playing as well. They both kind of loosen up and revisit their childhood, and I think that's very sweet. I do want to point out that one of the reasons uh, that doesn't work so well for me was also in the original She-Ra. It was really hard for me to tell that Glimmer was supposed to be Angela's daughter back then because Angela looks so like young and gorgeous and Glimmer looks older. Uh, all the characters are sort of drawn the same. I feel that way a little bit about Tila and the Sorceress and Man-at-Arms. Uh, Tila to me, I mean she's got a body that won't quit obviously, but she also looks like 40 years old. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think Tila and Adam are supposed to be maybe 
teens? Yeah, 18 at most, maybe. 19? And they both, yeah, they both look like they're like 30 or 40 to me. And so knowing that like sorceress in this episode is like calling out to Tila as her daughter, um, they just all, they just all look the same. And it's, I think it's a consequence of the animation of the time. All the, the bodies are just, were they just were what they were. I totally agree. And you're, you're mentioning, I think, kind of the biggest like piece of lore from the original He-Man that only got explored in a couple episodes. And <clears throat> fun fact was introduced by Paul Dini, who would go on to be the creator of Harley Quinn, among many other Batman things, uh, is the fact that the sorceress is Tila's mother, but Tila doesn't know. And so kind of the emotional gut punch of this episode comes because... You know, the sorceress is in Castle Grayskull. She knows that Tila is in danger and kind of, like, uses her psychic powers to make sure Tila's still alive. And Tila feels her mother calling out for her. Uh, I would say with almost 100% certainty that we're going to spend a lot of time with this relationship in Revelations. Why? I'm probably asking a question that's obvious to a true fan, but why can't that be revealed? Um, because, well, okay, so the cartoon never, to my knowledge, super got into that, except for some vague language about, like, Tila's destiny, but I think the idea, which has been kind of carried through other fan conversations, is that Tila is destined to become the sorceress, but she can't know that. And so does Man-at-Arms love the sorceress? I think... It's a caretaker situation. I would have to rewatch the episode where they dive into this, but I think Man at Arms basically agrees to take care of the sorceress's child. So oh. he's not like a biological parent. That that kind of sucks for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of familiar I mean, when they say that Revelations is like Game of Thronesy, like you can kind of see it in this relationship, right? Yeah, I can see where they would be able to find stuff like that. Yeah. But that, uh, so there's like, I gave you the kind of in-world reason for why I like this episode too f so much, but the biographical reason is because this is my first memory of, of watching He-Man was watching this episode with my mom, you know, Whoa. who has since passed away. And so I like can't help but think of her when I see this episode. And, and the, the ending, which is really fascinating, is... Uh, Tila just says, like, you know, throughout all of this, I, I had the strangest feeling that my mother was looking out for me. And then you just pan up to the sorceress and, and she just says she was. And uh, it's like such an interesting note to end the episode on because it's not really the key of the drama. It just comes in at the end there. It's a neat way to make use of this lore, I feel. Yeah, I mean, what Tila says is even more detailed than all of that. She says... My mom loves me and wants me in her arms. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's, like, very, very um, intimate, especially when you talk about the context of other episodes. Like, when else in He-Man does someone get to say something like that? Just a little more. <clears throat> At last. Oh, what a climb. I don't know about you, but <sighs> I could sleep for a, a week. We'll have you home in no time. You know, the strangest thing about this whole experience is my mother. Your, your mother? Well, I don't know how to explain. You're the only parent I've known. But in the middle of everything, I had this overwhelming feeling that my mother was protecting me. I felt that she loves me and wants me in her arms. She does, Tia. 
So here's some fun facts about this episode that I think will will help in our discussion of it. So, Robert Lamb, who wrote this episode, this is his first script for He-Man. He was a storyboard artist, and he talks about on his website how he hated storyboarding for season two because, like, Larry Dottilio was gone. He would always do Larry's episodes, and he just felt the scripts were so weak. And so... He was talking about how he was storyboarding this episode called Fisto's Forest and was just not feeling it and looked at this picture of Castle Grayskull and started thinking about the abyss around it and how that was the like source of Grayskull's power and uh, decided to write an episode based on exploring this concept. So I guess he had pitched a full like Skeletor attacks Grayskull and pushes Tila end story and Art Natal, who is one of the EPs, said, you know, there's a lot of stories where Skeletor attacks Grayskull. Can we do it another way? And so he came up with this like much more character-driven story. But again, this was his first script. And uh, you can see, I think, that a storyboard artist scripted it because there's... You, you may remember filmation animation tends to be on the, you know, more conservative side, uh, like with expressiveness. But this is a pretty lush episode as far as these things go. Yeah, I'm remembering bits now that you say that, that I can kind of picture drawn out on a storyboard. Like, even when Tila is sort of running ahead of Adam to do the hide-and-seek thing, I could see this storyboard, like, and then she jumps up on a branch and does, like, a gymnastic flip over it, and then jumps up to this other thing, and here's the pose that she's going to hit when she's up there. They really, um, beat by beat, sort of mapped out a lot of that stuff in the forest, I bet. For sure. And to me, like, the the piece de resistance, which, if you're a, a She-Ra fan and you don't care about He-Man, please at least watch this sequence. The transformation sequence is so fucking cool. Because, obviously, the energy of it emanates from the abyss, and Tila's trapped there. So we get to see what the transform looks like from inside the abyss, and it's crazy. Yes, that was the part that I wanted to obviously make sure we talked about because it looked really cool and really unique. And again, in context, I had to imagine for a, like a lifelong fan of He-Man, that was very rewarding to see. Yeah, it's it's super satisfying. <clears throat> and you can see where it comes from, like the imagination of a storyboard artist. And I'm just a sucker in general for like, cool transforms i brought it up more than a couple times in in discussing she-ra um and this moment is just great and then yeah you joked about the theme song the theme song plays for like the entire rescue which almost kind of like in a weird way it railroads the pacing of the scene because there's not really time to there's not really suspense because you have this like driving bass and drums and you're like oh well they're gonna get her out in like a minute because that's as long as this song loops for you know <laughs> that's but, so meta to like th even think about that and sort of math it out yeah but it's still i think it's it's a great moment and yeah i i just i like how ultimately it has nothing to do with punching or you know what wins the day is just heroes helping people well, I'm a big fan of, of magical girl anime, and so a lot of those have the transformation sequence that you see in every episode. And what's really cool to me about this choice is that it adds something visual 
that is an easy, smooth connection to an animation that you've probably watched a hundred times by now. Uh, and that's very cool. No one even has to explain it. No one's, like, He-Man doesn't say out loud anything like, and now the power is coming out of the abyss into me. Like, you just, you just get it. You get that the sparks that you've seen sort of fly into him a hundred times before, now you see where they come from. Um, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, and I like that Tila's a little, like, she's actually scared by it. She's like, oh, I'm gonna get out of here before whatever Well, again, she's the only freaking person in this episode who doesn't know who He-Man is. And so as far as she's concerned, there's, like, a meteor shower coming up from the Earth. Of course she's terrified. And yeah. no one ever no one ever clues her in either. That was one of the stranger parts of this episode to me is that we as the viewer know what it is and we get to see it. But no one's ever like there's there's no scene after where Tila's like, I saw the strangest thing, you guys. <laughs> Tila's hurt? I'm going after her. No, wait. He won't get very far. There are very strong updrafts. That means we can't use the sky sled to go down there. We must climb down. And I know someone better suited for the task. That's strange. I wonder what... By the power of Greyskull! I think it's funny that we watched kind of in, in 2002, we watched the episode that establishes the, the moat around Grayskull. So if that is the origin, we know that it's connected to Despondos in some way as well. Uh, I Obviously, Despondos was not on Filmation's radar, but it, you know, the, the continuity nerd in me did think about like, oh, if Tila kept going, would she like be exiled with Hordak? I, I even wondered when we watched that episode if that's what was happening. If they were getting sent to Despondos or if if Hordak just failed to, you know, summon Despondos and just fell into a hole. I really, uh, I'm not so sure. Oh, well, does he get sucked up or down too? Because I know Hordak does end up in Despondos, but you do see in, in uh, contemporary times in that reboot that like the snake men are fucking around in that moat. And they're not in Despondo, so I don't know. It's kind of, I guess it's whatever the writers need it to be. Yeah, it's probably not something that got that kind of continuity applied to it at the time. It was just like, this looks sick. It's digging into the ground. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and again, I think this issue of like what continuity and lore, it's interesting. Uh, someone wrote us today, I don't know if you read this letter, and said that like other fans don't have the problem with like character base versus lore base that we seem to which is fair i guess but uh i i think this show like this episode of he-man is kind of analogous to how princesses of power handles lore where it's like little little things here and there you know and it it's so interesting in a show that is so heavily lore based to do a character episode and i guess i still wish that princesses of power had just swung the other way and done one episode that was like here's everything all you fucking nerds need so you can just chill out 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And the funniest part about this letter that we received today, I'm not going to put the name on it because, um, you know, this person had a lot of critical things to say and they have a right to them. But there's something that I wanted to sort of address publicly, and that is we love this franchise. Um, I listen to another podcast called The Besties, and they do a lot of video game critique. They get a lot of letters, too, that are like, wow, you're so critical, you're so nitpicky, do you even like video games at all? And this letter we got is not the first person to kind of say, because we had stuff we were picking on, that, like, it was some sort of problem. Um, I really stand by the idea that if you love something part of loving something is really like analyzing it and turning it over and thinking about it and being critical. I don't think we're critical in a mean way. I hope we're not. Um, we're just critical in an analytical way. And I think we try really hard to say what we like to. We love Shira. We love Masters of the Universe. If we didn't adore these things, we wouldn't be doing this a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that too. And also like, I, I don't know. I felt like it was pretty clear that we like the finale a lot uh and we like heap praises on it but that's that's okay you know i think in anything there's room for praise and there's room for criticism and uh even in you know with new adventures we found some things to praise uh and in my favorite episode of he-man we found some things to criticize it is what it is yeah, especially with um, Heart Part 2, I think we really front-loaded what we were excited about. We sort of got our happy screaming out of the way and then dove into it. I think that's pretty easy to misinterpret, um, but I mean, I, I take some of the blame for that, but at the same time, can't go back now, it's recorded. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But anyway, I, you know, I... I my small sample size, I know there's other people who uh, wish that there had been a little more lore in She-Ra, and that's okay, because it's still a great character piece. And ultimately, you know, the franchise, it's its an ever-evolving thing, right? So we kind of went backwards from the present day to the original He-Man, and I think we've seen a lot of strengths and weaknesses along the way, and you know, we'll see what Kevin Smith does, but ultimately, like, no one has the final say on this franchise, right? So we're we're in a week where the people behind He-Man.org have decided to make a comic, a fan comic called He-Man 85, or I'm sorry, Masters of the Universe 85, which is, quote, at the height of He-Man and She-Ra's popularity, no reboots, no ponytails, no, I forget the third thing they said, no outer space. Un something about uncles. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're they're saying they're basically saying it's not New Adventures, it's not He Man two thousand two, it's not Princesses of Power. Okay, um, that's great. I I really do respect the craft that goes into that. All the same, this is uh, things evolve in the media, right? Like He Man and She Ra are part of the cultural conversation, and She Ra in particular now is like this like living breathing thing that like so many people in 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 the world just care about and like if you hate revelations that's fine because someone's gonna run with it after kevin smith if you hate princesses of power you wouldn't be listening to us but that's also fine because you know there's gonna be another one no one has the final say certainly not the people who are trying to keep it trapped in 1985 yeah that's one of my biggest qualms with not only the Masters of the Universe fandom, but like fandom in general, is that 
people seem to want exactly more of the thing that they liked. Yep. Uh, and that is impossible. You can't do that because in order for you to like something exactly that much and exactly that way, I think you'd have to erase your memory that you ever experienced it in the first place. And like, I get it. You're chasing this high, whether that's nostalgia or the way it made you think or the way it made you feel. Like, yeah, obviously you love that and you'd like to experience it again. But I think putting the responsibility for you having that experience onto Mattel or Disney or who Netflix or whomever is really misguided. I completely agree. And as I told you in a DM last night, I also think you cannot have this conversation without looking at the culture around things. So, like, yes, technically... He-Man and She-Ra were the most popular they've ever been in 1985. But you have to understand that in 1985, there were like 10 shows for kids to watch across like two or three networks, right? ABC, NBC, CBS. Fox didn't exist. So you had three networks doing cartoons, you know, a couple hours a week. The kids are going to latch on to the most colorful and exciting things out of those 10. And, like, yeah, there was, like, a He-Man Day declared in Los Angeles in 1987, I think. That's incredible. Culture's not like that anymore. There's, like, if you count YouTube, thousands of things kids could be watching at any minute. And the fact that She-Ra has so much of a devoted fan base in this, like, crazy fractured culture where you just pick and choose from thousands of things, it's insane. And, like, yes, the internet amplifies that passion and the internet didn't exist in 1985, but you can't talk about one without the other, right? So I would I would say that maybe passion for She-Ra has never been higher. Yeah, I would argue that in 2020, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, for something that got released in this like binge format where everyone watched seasons at a time at once, it's about as popular as a cartoon can be. I completely agree. Like, look how it trends on Twitter. Look at the passion of the people who love it. It's it's really special, man. But again, it's not it's not the end. It's just another iteration. And I liked showing Lauren all these previous iterations of He-Man because they mean something to me, except new adventures. But um, ultimately, like, it's just kind of a pop culture curiosity, right? Like, what really matters is the stories that are... are is how the stories are told, when they're told, and who they affect. Yeah, you can be concerned with the past. I just think, like, not from a place of resentment or rage. One of the things I liked about Princesses of Power and the team behind it is they were always so positive and optimistic and excited about what the show could be. And I never heard a single person on the team that made Princesses of Power say something like, yeah, we're fixing old She-Ra. We're correcting the mistakes of that other show. That's I don't think that's how they were seeing it. Or if they were, they very professionally kept it to themselves. Anytime something like this, like Masters 85, is created as like a, all those other mistakes suck. Don't you agree? We're going to do it right this time. Like, you don't have to have that attitude. You could make the exact same product you intended to make and just say like, this swing is going to be extra fun. Like, we're going to do something really cool this time without throwing a bunch of other stuff under the bus. Like, who cares? You shouldn't be making your art from a place of 
disdain. Well, and here's our political content. It That is a very conservative Republican strategy. Is like, let's manifest the other and name it and then say that's what we're not. Right? Rather than celebrating what we are, here's what we're not. We're not New Adventures. We're not He-Man 2002. We're not She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Okay, but what are you? Right? Like... I'm sure that lovely people who are very talented are working on this, but I, I agree with you. I just think the whole enterprise is messed up. And I, I hope that people don't feel like by like spending a week talking about these flashback shows, like we're being overly reverential to the past. Like it's impossible for me to watch Shira without thinking about this previous show that I love. But Lauren and I and Lauren didn't have to try because she just didn't have that attachment, but I tried really hard to like look at it from a, a modern perspective. And, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to how other people take She-Ra and, and put it, make it a part of their lives. Because I'll always have this, right? And that's, that's why I wanted to talk about these old episodes. It's because it, it still means something to me. But it's not the be-all and end-all. Yeah, and what I appreciate about you personally, Eric, one of the many things that I appreciate is that I have been able to come in for, like, several seasons and even take your favorite episode and with your favorite episode be like, yo, as a woman, I'm not so sure about how we're treating Tila, actually. Like, the moral of this one really throws her under the bus like a stick in the mud, and uh, it's not cool for me. And you're just fine with that. Like, it doesn't affect how much you like it, and I think a lot of people could learn a valuable lesson from that. Yeah, well, you know, you have to love things like an adult. Right. That maybe that's the overarching moral of our whole podcast is like people <laughs> on both sides, right? Like we were just talking about a fan who felt like we didn't like Shira enough maybe. Yeah, it's it goes back to the very first thing you said, Cr- being critical is a part of liking something or at least no, nah, that's not true. I can watch an episode of uh I don't know, The Floor is Lava and just let it wash over me, right? And like it. But when I love something, I'm going to deep dive into it. And, like, I didn't have to share this with Lauren and with everybody else. But we ch- we decided to do this. And so the fact that you've decided to listen, I hope, means you understand that ultimately, like, loving something and being critical of something go hand in hand. It does. And also, my personal opinion is if that you sat through 100 episodes of us just listing things we liked for an hour every time... You might have left a while ago. I think even if uh, even if not every listener realizes the reason that they're listening, sometimes you listen to hear people disagree with you, even even subconsciously. You're like, ah, I'm I'm lit up by the fact that I have a different opinion. So next week we'll be back with a, an hour long list of things we like, uh, <laughs> not from Shira, just in oh general. yeah, just things. Yeah, I, I like Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Tangerine LaCroix. I like uh, many flavors of LaCroix. Um, Coraline. I really like um, high-low dresses and many kinds of boots. (laughs) You know what I like? She-Ra. We should do a podcast about that. Oh, yeah. I don't think anyone's doing that right now. We should give it a go. (laughs) Um, I actually don't know what people are going to hear next. It depends on... whether something we're plotting when that's going to happen so you'll either hear from people who aren't us well mm, 
Either way, you'll be hearing from people who aren't us. But yeah, let's put it to you this way. (laughs) This is the end of flashback week. We are done with flashback stuff. We're going to loop back around to Princesses of Power in one way or another. Um, We have some really cool stuff cooked up. We're hopefully not done with people from that show. Fingers crossed. So thanks for sticking with us. Uh, It's Princesses of Power from, from here on out. That's right. But Lauren, thanks for uh, for going back in time with me. I, I had fun with this. I hope if our listeners followed along, they liked it too. Uh, Lauren, I guess to end, would you recommend that a She-Ra and the Princess is a Power fan watch Into the Abyss? You were you said yes to Power of Grayskull, like yes, asterisk, like yeah. as a fun afternoon, and you said no to Save Our City. <laughs> so I feel like this is in the middle. Um, I feel like there's less relevant characters and less relevant lore to the show it doesn't really feed into princesses of power directly like we're not seeing mara and learning more about mara however i really appreciate and like the points you made about this was sort of the fledgling relationship based script um this was where we first started to see that a very um, high action, masculine, chest puffing program could have emotion in it too. And if you wanted to sort of give yourself some education about that arc and that evolution, this could be cool to watch. Hell yeah. All right, we'll see you next Friday, everybody, one way or the other. Listen to your Thanks for listening to Shira, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. <laughs>